Okay. The passage we just listened to. I don't think this is the most familiar passage in in the New Testament, but it's surely a familiar one to all of us. A woman who is specifically described as a sinner. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears during a banquet hosted by a Pharisee for Jesus. Now, a lot of times when we read the Bible, we read it in a very superficial way that we rarely spend the time and pay attention to the details that is due to understanding the teaching as revealed in the Word of God. But if, and only if, that we are willing to stay in the world of the Scripture longer, then we might allow the power of the Word to bring us into its reality. Today's passage is a really good example of what I just said. Now let me just start with a few obvious questions that I have. Um, when, I, when I read this passage, I, I come up with a few questions. And these questions, I think, will lead us to a much better understanding of this biblical account. And I have listed these four questions in the outline in your bulletin. Well, these questions are, first, how could a sinful woman, who is very likely a prostitute, enter into the banquet for Jesus hosted in the house of a Pharisee? I mean, as we all know, aren't all Pharisee sinful phobic? And second question, why did the woman weep? Well, we tend to attribute her crying either to the remorse of her sin or to the overwhelming love she received from Jesus. But is this true? The third question, when she washed Jesus' feet, why did she not use water and towel? Instead, she used her tears and hair I mean, how could you really clean anything with tears? How could you really dry anything with hair? It sounds romantic to wash with tears, but it doesn't sound very practical to me. And the fourth question, why did she pour the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet instead of his head or his hands? Now, ladies, would you put foundation or blush on your feet? I mean, these are quite obvious questions to ask about this, this passage. But once, once we have studied the cultural background of the events that just took place in this passage, we will be able to find the answers which will lead us into a much deeper understanding of God's will in this section of the Gospel. Now the passage begins by giving us its context. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Well, first thing, we need to know that this dinner is not a private invitation, although it sounds like a private event, this is a community event. It's highly likely that Jesus preached in that town that very day, And according to Jewish tradition, the locals will provide hospitality to this traveling rabbi after his teaching session. And the host will always be the local religious leaders. And this time we know that the leader 
of Pharisees is called Simon. Well, we also need to know that not all dinner is of noble intention. Some dinners are set up with traps to humiliate the guests. Jesus, as told by the passage we are studying right now, is approaching this exact situation. The opening verse here does not look very extraordinary in the first look. Someone invited Jesus to dinner, and upon arrival, Jesus immediately reclines at the table. What makes this verse extraordinary is what's missing there. This scene is filled with tension with what did not happen. As Jesus entered the house, all traditional courtesies were omitted. Traditional Jewish courtesy for hospitality must include the following two things. First, it's a kiss of greeting, usually on the face or forehead, not lips. If it is to someone more senior or more superior, the kiss will usually be on his or her hand. In some very unusual situations, a person will kiss someone's feet to show great appreciation and self-humility. Well, while kissing is the first greeting the host will do to the guests, another courtesy that must be performed is to have the servants wash the guests' feet and hands. Of course, they will use water to wash and towel to dry, and in addition, they will use olive oil. Well, olive oil was one of the most common household products in Jewish time for cleaning purpose, just like the soap that we use today. And as a matter of fact, the, the soap I use is an organic olive oil soup. So I, every day I shower very biblically. <laughs> so for Jews, if these hospitality rituals were not performed, guests won't recline on the couch and banquet simply won't start. Every culture has rituals for welcoming guests and their omissions communicate many things. To omit the entire list of rituals would be a calculated and appointed insult and is a public insult. This is especially true when hosting a rabbi like Jesus. Special courtesy was expected, not pointed public insult. This is then, then, then why I said this is a public insult. Remember I said this is a community event. It is because this kind of banquet for a traveling rabbi is, is an open event. Even though most villagers will not participate in the banquet, in the meal itself, the venue is nevertheless open for villagers to enter freely and to show admiration and appreciation to the, to the rabbi. This is why this sinful woman in the story, was able to show up right beside Jesus. So, Pharisee Simon, he deliberately ignored all these welcoming rituals. His purpose was to publicly humiliate Jesus. This is especially true in Jewish culture, which cares nothing but face and shame. Also, no one in the room could have failed to observe these omissions. In a situation, Jesus 
he had the full right to say, "Well, I see that I'm not welcome here," and then he could just leave and flush with anger. Doing this will at least throw some of the insult back to Simon. Everyone would have expected Jesus to do this, but this rabbi, Jesus, responded in a culturally unexpected way. Being humiliated in front of the eyes of many people, not only that Jesus did not retaliate, the text said he even entered and reclined. Now, now let's get the, the picture first, okay, of a first-century Jewish banquet. How does it look like? Like, how did they recline to eat? Well, this information is very crucial to really grasp the understanding of the story. Okay, what shape? Of table is for typical Chinese meal. It's round table. We like round table, ten course meal, right? We like that. How about the table in Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper? It's a long table. But a table in a Jewish banquet is neither round nor long. It's a U-shaped table called triclinium. Well, it sounds like metal, but it's not. It's a Latin word, and this is how it looks like. This is a, a triclinium, okay? It's, a, it's like a freeway, and this is open here. So the servants will serve the food, enter here, and put it on the table, and the guests recline on the couch here. And the picture looks like this. The next picture is, a, is kind of funny, but you get the picture. Like, this is how they eat. <laughs> and I have no idea why people would eat like that. It is for me the most difficult posture to eat. Now, how am I going to get the food to move down my stomach? But in fact, this is a very common setup for banquet across the Roman Empire in Jesus' time. Now, in a banquet that is aimed to humiliate Jesus, he entered the house and reclined at the table. You can probably imagine how much tension is filled in the atmosphere. In a very tense situation, which no one knows what is going to happen next, out of the blue, a woman came forward into the scene. And the, pas- and the passage says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. First, this woman is described as a sinner in town. From the original text, the term town is related to one's occupation. As a result, the woman can be very reasonably believed to be a prostitute. It's highly likely that this woman just listened to Jesus' proclamation of the gospel that day. She was deeply touched by the the message of Jesus, so she repented and her life was renewed. In the eyes of the first century Jews, it is almost impossible for a prostitute to be set free from her sinner's status. But Jesus has always been culturally revolutionary. He always declares forgiveness right at the spot, without requiring the sinner to make compensation or to go to the temple to offer sacrifice or undergo cleansing rituals. He requires none of these things. He just simply says, you are forgiven, go in peace. This prostitute 
has experienced grace and acceptance like never before. So in order to offer her appreciation, so what she did? She followed Jesus' Twitter or his Facebook event page. And and she found that Jesus is attending the the banquet at the house of Simon the Pharisee. She went there, bringing with her an expensive jar of perfume in order to ordain Jesus as a token of appreciation. Now you have to take note. You have to notice that this woman planned only to ordain Jesus with the perfume. She did not plan to wash Jesus' feet in the first place. Therefore, the scripture only indicates that she brought with her the perfume, not water, not towel. It is also highly likely that she arrived at Simon's house before the arrival of Jesus, awaiting the rabbi who brought to this world God's loving mercy. Now, I hope you get the picture of this story now. This woman, arriving at Simon's home to show her appreciation to Rabbi Jesus, she never would have expected Simon to openly humiliate Jesus. She never would have expected that Simon would deliberately omit all welcoming rituals. When this humiliation occurs, Jesus, to the surprise of everyone, decided to continue to enter the banquet and recline at the table. In this very tense situation, seeing Jesus being humiliated and insulted in the public setting, this woman, putting away all cultural taboos, ignoring her lack of social status, knowing that consequences will follow her and she will have to pay a price later, she decides to break through the crowd and step forward to wash the feet of her beloved Rabbi Jesus. Remember that this woman only planned to go there to ordain Jesus uh, with a perfume. She never would have anticipated to be caught in such a tension-filled situation. Now seeing Jesus being humiliated, this woman, who has just experienced the forgiveness of God brought to her through Jesus, decided to intervene and compensate for Jesus, despite the fact that she lacks every resource whatsoever to do so. The scripture continues. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. At this point of story, it's not difficult to deduce why this woman weeps. Obviously, when she saw Jesus being publicly humiliated, she might feel angry or agitated, but more likely to be sad and anxious. She knows that she is merely a woman, and worse, her occupation is one that's disgraceful. She knows it so well that no one will care about what she has to say. She knows it so well that even if she asks, there's no chance that Simon would give her water and towel. So in a situation where she feels helpless and lost, she cries, she weeps. I wonder if you have ever been caught in, a, in a, such a situation, in a society that demonstrates increasing hostility and, 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 and anger 
hatred towards Jesus and his church? Are we just being comfortable in staying indifferent and insensitive? I think Pastor Don a few weeks ago mentioned about our Prime Minister Ron Harper's Twitter on Canada Day, right? He did, right? Two mentions of God, and it was then flooded with criticism and outrageous attacks, right? I really don't understand why. I mean, I, I wonder why. why. Why people can have so much hatred towards Jesus. I mean, he just came here to the world, laid down his life to atone for our sins. I mean, I don't understand what did Jesus do to deserve such malicious comments. You know, this is the world we're in. And the saddest thing is that this situation is getting more and more perceived as normal as acceptable, even by Christians. It is the world we're in. And what can a church do? What can a church like us do? Facing a society that is getting more and more hostile to the Lord we have committed ourselves to follow, do we just try to put a blind eye and stay out of trouble? Or can we become more like this woman in this passage, even with no status, no resources, no ability, and not even the most basic things such as water and towel, she nevertheless cannot stand to watch Jesus, her Lord, being humiliated. She boldly stepped forward to wash Jesus' feet. No one will provide her with water, but even if all she has is one single drop of tear, she will use it to wash Jesus' feet. She is sorrowful in seeing Jesus being humiliated. And now she's using her tears of sorrow to wash the feet of Jesus. Now after washing Jesus' feet, she will have to dry them. Even if she did not have a towel, we might wonder why she did not use a piece of cloth from, from her long rope, her clothes, to dry them. Why use her hair, which everyone knows that it doesn't soak up water at all? Well, the reason she cannot use her rope, her clothes, to dry Jesus' feet is very likely due to her occupation. Prostitutes in those days dress to seduce men. So it's just not proper to use her clothes for cleansing purpose. But her hair is a different story. Hair is considered the most sacred part of a female, which is being covered most of the time, even for prostitutes. This woman simply wanted to use the most sacred resource that is at her disposal at the very moment to counter the shame imposed on Jesus. Now, as far as kissing the feet of Jesus is concerned, we have to acknowledge the cultural difference before we conclude the appropriateness of this action. In the Middle Eastern culture, kissing someone's feet signifies extreme appreciation and total self-humiliation. Of course, we acknowledge the fact that tradition does, does prohibit kissing opposite sex. But in a situation that no one was willing to come forward to stand for Jesus, this woman decided to put traditions behind the honor and dignity of Jesus. He, she kissed 
the feet of Jesus. The last thing this woman did for Jesus was to pour expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. As I asked, why his feet? Why not his hand or his head? Well, first of all, since Jesus already reclined at the table, you remember that picture? His feet were likely the only part that this woman can access. But second, and more important, this woman probably realized that her tears and hair could not make Jesus' feet sufficiently clean. So she decided to use the perfume, the expensive perfume, to compensate for it. Now, for Simon, this woman crash his party and undermine his plan to insult Jesus. In the second scene, the scripture continues. When the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon's statement has revealed two problems. First, he thinks that this woman is still a sinner. That she still must be excluded from the community of God's people. And second, Simon thinks that if Jesus is a true prophet, then he must reject what this woman has just done for him. In other words, the God of Israel can only accept services from the law keepers of the community and must reject the service from other repented, law-breaking sinners. Simon defines sinners as law-breakers. But that's not how God defines sinners. For God, sinners consist of at least two groups of people. The first group are law-breaking sinners. And the second group, law-keeping sinners. As a result, Jesus felt compelled to tell Simon a parable. The scripture continues, Two people owe money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? It's obvious that the one who owed 500 represents the woman, and the one owing 50 represents Simon the Pharisee. Simon's point of view, which a lot of us naturally share, focuses on the difference between the two debtors. And the difference is on their owing amount, 450 denarii. But Jesus' focus, instead of their differences, is on their similarities. Both of them owe money, Both of them are unable to satisfy payment. Both of them require grace from their lender to become debt-free. And finally, both of them are expected to show love to their merciful debt-canceling lender. Their similarities are way more than their difference. Now, Now, how can the one owing 50 discriminate against the one owing 500? Who is he to ostracize other people when he himself is in need of grace also. The biggest issue is really not how much we owe, but the biggest issue might be how little we think we owe. 
Simon is a law-keeping sinner. The problem is not about keeping the law. His problem is that he thinks he can justify himself by keeping the law. Simon represents the temptation facing all Christians who appear to be righteous and morally upright. Well, I'm not saying being righteous or even looking righteous is an issue, is a problem. Not at all. I'm saying though, looking righteous can easily deceive us to think that we are good enough, we are spiritual enough, or worse, we're better than others. At that point, we will become spiritually blind. Look at Simon, a Pharisee who, in all his conscience, believes that he is way better than this law-breaking woman in the story. He became so blind that he cannot even see his fault in omitting all welcoming rituals when Jesus arrived. And worse, when this woman tried to compensate for his mistakes, he went further to discriminate and ostracize this gracious woman. When we become, when we believe that we are good enough, we will then not consider ourselves in debt. Then when we, when we will not consider ourselves in debt, then we will not consider ourselves in need of grace. Then we will not feel compelled to return grace with love to our debt-canceling God. For those of us who have received this debt-canceling grace long ago, it is easy for us to fall into the temptation of seeing ourselves good enough, just like Simon the Pharisee did. And finally, into the last scene of this account, it is very rare that we see Jesus being so blunt, so direct, to point out someone's shortcoming in extending hospitality to himself. Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now this is the worst thing that Jesus can do to Simon, which is to compare him, a law-keeping Pharisee, to this law-breaking prostitute. I mean, when you go to someone's house for dinner, if we feel the hospitality is, is not very good, it's disrespectful, or you probably won't make a scene on the spot, right? Would you? Like, you probably won't tell the host that, wow, you know, your cooking is horrible, and the food you're serving me is worse than Pastor Sam's cooking. And this is for sure an irreversible insult. <laughs> Normally, no one, no one would do that, right? You just don't go next time, right? When, why Jesus... Why did he? Remember, Jesus, he chose not to confront Simon in the first place by continuing to enter and recline at the table. Why did Jesus change his mind to offer the most direct, most blunt confrontation to Simon in front of all his friends? Why Jesus changed his mind? Well, we all know that Simon's mistake was not because of being naive, or being absent-minded, he did it on purpose. 
The way Jesus confronted Simon would only add fuel to the fire and create more troubles for himself. Why did Jesus change his mind? Is he stupid? But there are at least three reasons Jesus to change his mind and confront, confront Simon. First, as a rabbi, Jesus is obligated to point out Simon's mistake and try to restore him. Second, Jesus wanted to endorse the courage and loyalty of this woman. As an outcast of the society, what this woman did was an open slap on the face to Simon in front of his guest. Being a leader in the community, it would be so easy for Simon to retaliate against this woman. This woman will stand no chance to fight against this powerful Pharisee. At the same time, when Jesus was humiliated, this woman, she did not allow herself to remain a bystander. She rather enters into the pain and suffering of Jesus, then spares herself from troubles. Just like what Apostle Paul testifies, he said, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. But the last reason why Jesus attacked Simon in public, in his own home, in front of his friends, last reason is the most significant one. By aggressively confronting Simon, Jesus deliberately shifts the anger and hostility of Simon and his peers from this woman onto himself. While this woman is watching, she sees Jesus defending her. She knows why. She knows very well that this is only round one. Simon and his friends are deeply offended by Jesus now and will return with more aggressive attacks. It is not the first time, it is not the only time that Jesus shifts the crowd's anger and hostility from a sinner onto himself. Remember I spoke a little more than a month ago about tax collector Zacchaeus. By offering himself to stay at Zacchaeus' house, Jesus has shifted the community's anger and hostility from Zacchaeus onto himself. And on the cross, it's the same concept but much bigger scale that Jesus shifts the wrath of God from us onto himself. In Simon's house, the most often offending line Jesus spoke was his confirmation of the forgiveness for this woman's sin. The scripture says, Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus, his costly demonstration of grace here, shows that there is a huge cost for our forgiveness. Grace is never cheap. And forgiveness is always a solemn, a painful matter. Just as the prophet Isaiah's portrait of the sin-forgiving Messiah, and it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. What happened next to Simon? We don't know. What will happen to the woman? What will her life change after this? We're not told. But all this is not important. What's important is how we will change after receiving this sin-forgiving grace. How will you and I, how are you and I willing to respond to this debt-canceling grace which comes to us all with a great cost? Let us all pray together and recommit ourselves to Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, it is your grace that while we are going astray, turning to our own way, you sent your Son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for the transgression of us all. We ask for your help that we take this courageous and loyal woman as we learn today as our example. That in a world that is hostile to Jesus and his church, we are willing to enter into the pain and suffering of Jesus. So that in your grace and mercy, the world will know the glorious nature of Jesus through our testimonies. For we pray in your son's Jesus' precious name. Amen.